that you will be glorified through it all, that it is just not these events, but a spirit-filled or gospel-centered celebration every time we get together. Lord, we pray that um, our church will be a church that loves not just in word, but in deed, that, Father, people will notice something different about people at Revive because we love you, Lord. So, Lord, we pray that um, we will just want people to meet you. Uh, to meet you, for us to introduce people to you, because, Lord, meeting you has changed us forever. So, Lord, I pray that you will continue to light that fire in us and that we will keep each other accountable and grow closer to you. I pray that, Father, Lord, our church, as um, family units, individuals, we will be very healthy, humble, and, Father, um, just really teachable before your spirit. So open our hearts and eyes to hear what you have to say. And Lord, I pray that your fruit will just grow in us. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now our brother Manny Hernandez will read the text for today. Today's scripture comes from the books of Genesis 1-1 and John 1, 1-3. Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John 1, 1-3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. This is the Word of the Lord. series today, and um, it's an important one. I guess they're all important. I, I don't know. I, I'm kind of shake, <laughs> shaking inside, and because um, I, I know how important this particular series is, especially at this time in our country, in our history, um, in our culture. And start this. Uh, can I pray? Let's pray. I want to pray for the series before we hear this word. Those of us who grew up in the church, Father, we, we know these words. We've heard them maybe a hundred, a thousand times. It, it may seem so basic, too easy to talk about. Um, at the same time, um, these things that are so fundamental and basic, that you are creator and we live in creation, that you are good, and reality is made good by a very, very, very tremendously glorious and good God. We have forgotten these things. And we, your people, we live in a world and in a time and a culture where the word of man, the word of our world, shapes our thoughts and our minds and our hearts far more than your word, far more than you. And please forgive us, Father, for being such a fleshly and weak and adulterous people. But I pray, Lord, though I am unworthy and these are foolish lips, would you use me to preach 
what is basic again and make it come to life and what is so needed again so that your people could be as our church is called, to be revived, to live again, to live before your face and before your love and your grace. Make your people a people filled with truth and grace. And we walk through life knowing we live inside a creation before our creator who is our redeemer. May we live in that joy and that great hope with great power and courage, with knowledge and virtue, with brotherly love, with divine love, like we talked about last week, unto holiness. And so use this series and do something wonderful and beautiful that no man can do, that we need you to do in us and with us in this church and for our neighbors and our friends. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's get into it. Part one, what is the beginning? What is the beginning? What is it? Let's just start with that. Part two, the importance of the beginning. That's part two. The importance of the beginning. How do you begin? What is the beginning? Why is it so important that we know what is the right beginning? We don't even know that anymore right now. And so I want to get to that. What the importance of the beginning. And part three, the word of grace and truth. The word of grace and truth. That's how we can get back to the right beginning. And then to live in the middle as we run to his great ending, okay? Um, let me start with the story. I'll just ask uh, my daughter to go grab that water for me. I'm a grab me some water. <laughs> Need a little help, All right? You go grab my water. Um, part one: What is the beginning? <laughs> Let me start with the story. It's a personal story. I hope you'll see that it's far more than a personal story. It's very relevant to you. It's relevant at this time of history. So um, I graduated high school in 1989, and I thus started college in 1989 at uh, a school a little bit up the road from here that you may have heard of, and that school's name is Stanford. And back then, in 1989, at Stanford University, for decades, for decades, they had a series. They had a, they had a series of choice of uh, of classes that they called Western Civilization. It was required; every freshman had to take it. So, no matter what your major was, you came to that school. You had to take some version. They had different tracks: the history track or the philosophy track. The one that I chose was called Great Works. Great Works was all the most important books in history, philosophy, history, and yes, religion. Except something very interesting happened in 1988. In 1988, the students stormed the president's office at Stanford University. It made news across the country and actually even around the world. 
And the students basically took over the president of the university's office, and they had a chant. It went like this. Hey, hey, ho, ho, Western Civ has got to go. <laughs> That's what they said again and again. Hey, hey, ho, ho, Western Civ has got to go. And the basic view was that if you believed in Western civilization, you must be white, and you were racist, and you were bad. And Western civilization oppressed women and minorities, and, of course, those people who were gay. And thus, Western Civ has got to go. That's what it meant back in 1988. Now, when a bunch of hooligans from your school vandalized your school, and, I mean, it, it was, it's actually a piece of remarkable power and violence for students to do this. And uh, so normally, if the leadership has some authority and some backbone and conviction, what you do is you discipline the students. There's actually this thing at Stanford called the fundamental standard. And if you do illegal and unethical things, you actually could get straight get kicked out of school. You know that? Just to let you know. For example, here's something that's common today for a lot of you, all of you guys who are young today, this is, might be news to you. In 1988 at Stanford University, if you cheated on a test, cheated on a test, you get kicked out of school. You could be very well kicked out of school. They didn't give you a slap on the wrist. They put you up on a trial and kick you out of school. Let me just tell you something. That is a good standard. It's called the fundamental standard. But even in 1988, the school didn't believe in it anymore. And so the university leadership, they caved. <laughs> they caved. And then they changed the curriculum. And they no longer called it Western civilization. And they now changed the name to cultures, ideas, and values. Do you hear that? It's not about something. There was a culture, the Western culture, and they have profound and deep truths. By the way, a lot of those truths come from the Bible. And those profound and deep truths unleash human flourishing and freedom throughout society. That was the belief. But in 1989, Stanford threw those beliefs out the window. Not right away, but in principle, they did. So when I was a freshman in 1989, we didn't call it Western Civ. We called it CIV. Civ. <laughs> so what there is was right at the bottom, relativism was put in. And so then they put in, the, for the first time ever, they put in a reading which they never had before. So if you take great works, so you know what the first thing that's assigned to you in great works? It is the Bible. You know a portion of the Bible that you read? Genesis chapter 1. The first verse, what we just read. <laughs> um, but then you read other books. Iliad, Odyssey, City of God, Plato, Aristotle. And for the first time, they threw in a book, The Poems of Sappho. Anybody know who Sappho is? Sappho, up to that point, 
1989, if you went all around America and you said, do you know Aristotle's? They're like, I heard of him. You can go somewhere, anywhere in the middle of the country. You ever heard of Plato? Yeah, I heard of him. Maybe I haven't read him, but I heard of him. But nobody ever heard of Sappho, including, you know, every freshman that showed up at Stanford in 1989. Sappho is Greek lesbian poetry. <laughs> and that's what we read that my first quarter at Stanford University. And so you could feel it right there. See? This Western Christian stuff, it's bad. It's bad. That was 1989. Now let me take you to this subject matter, Genesis chapter 1. We read Genesis. There was something else assigned. There was a, there was a story called the Enuma Elish. I don't know if I pronounced that correct. The Enuma Elish. Any of you read the Enuma Elish? I guess you have to go to some kind of like... A, school like this, but um, what the Enuma Elish is, it's a Sumerian, it is a Sumerian story of creation, that's what it is. There's some other ones, um, I can't remember if this was a sign, but I read it later on, I read it during my master's years, it was called the Atrahesis Epic, right? And if you ask me, the Atrahesis Epic is actually even more relevant <laughs> Uh, than the Enuma Elish because it's Sumerian sense. It actually overlaps better with the Bible. But let me tell you, here is why we read them. This is the part that's important. When you're reading them, you're reading an alternative, what they call the creation myth. Here are the creation myths. Of course, we get the Bible. Creation myths. And this was very interesting. I never heard this before. There's two myths in the Bible, according to my secular professors. Genesis chapter 1 is one myth, and Genesis chapter 2 is a second myth. That's what they said. And I was shocked. <laughs> I was like, hey, I'm an Orthodox Christian. If you said that to every Christian ever alive, they're like, what are you talking about? There's one, not two. But that's why it was taught. And they were both myths. And then you had the Enuma Elish, and the point was, there's parts of it that's pretty similar to Genesis. And then there's parts of it. Can't you see? It's similar to Genesis. Therefore, we know this thing is false. And they didn't quite put it this way, but everybody gets the message. Therefore, we know Genesis is false. That was the message at Stanford University in 1989. And let me tell you, every student got the message loud and clear, including me. All right? There is an assumption under this way of teaching. An assumption is something you believe, but you haven't yet questioned. You believe something, but you haven't said it out loud. So they never said this out loud exactly, but everybody knew. Here is the assumption, which is the fundamental teaching underneath the teaching of Numa Elish, Genesis chapter 1, creation myths. The teaching underneath the teaching is... We have outgrown these things. We know what the real truth is. These are myths. They were invented by ancient man through religion. But today, we're more advanced than that. We're moderns. They are ancient. We're modern. They're primitive. We're knowledgeable. Our story doesn't begin with a myth. We don't even talk about this thing called creation. 
Our story begins with science. That's the unspoken doctrine of that time. Now you can tell why I'm telling you the story because you know now as absolutely, it's not just the unspoken doctrine today. It is the doctrine today. <laughs> that is the doctrine today. And to start the series, I must start right here. Because if I don't start right here, and if I just give you a Sunday school lesson, there's God and he created everything, first day, second day, third. Hey, I could give you that Sunday school story and it'll be utterly boring. But if I start here, you're going, whoa. <laughs> and if we don't talk about this, we're not talking to our neighbors. We're not talking in a way that's helping anybody. So let's start right here. Now, I want to ask you a question. How do you conceive of the beginning of all things? All things. The beginning. In your mind, what's going on? Right? And let me ask you a different question. Do you really think science can give you that answer? What is the beginning? What is it? How did it happen? What exactly is the beginning of everything, of everything? And let me ask you that question. Can science actually give you that answer? It is an absolutely assumed, unspoken doctrine by faith, by faith, today that science can give you that answer. And one of the first questions I want to ask you is, do you actually think it could give you that answer? <laughs> think about it a little bit more. Don't just assume, don't just assume. Science, we just know science is better than religion. Science you can verify. It's a, it's a deeper knowledge, right, than theology or religion. Therefore, let's try to get the answer from science. Now, can science actually give you the answer? <laughs> I want to ask you that question. And you don't necessarily have to answer right now if you're not sure. But that's a really important question. Now let me, um, I, I won't get too much into it. I'll speak more on it in later messages in this series. The going answer by science is that some crazy number of years ago, 20 billion, that's the last one I read, right? There was a big explosion. It's called the Big Bang. And then everything started. From a science point of view, it doesn't seem like a bad explanation. But let me ask you, is that good enough to give you a conception of the beginning? Is it good enough? So I want to ask that start right here. Is that good enough? And obviously, since I'm asking the question, you know I think the answer is no. And as a pastor, as one who believes in the Bible, I don't think the answer is good enough. Now let me just give you a, a simple little argument. Even a child, even a four-year-old or a three-year-old can ask this question. Okay, there was this thing called the Big Bang, and before that, there wasn't even space. So, I mean, like, even a four-year-old, really smart one, of course, you know, what, what, there's no space? There's no time? Because that's what the theory says. All of matter is in this absolute oneness, and before that, there is no space. There is no time. There's, I don't even know if you can call it nothing because you got this, and then it explodes, 
and now we start. That's the beginning, supposedly, according to the science story. A smart four-year-old can ask this question. What is before that? <laughs> what is before that? A smart four-year-old can ask this question. Okay, let's say that's true. All the stuff, all the matter, all the atoms, all the energy is in one super concentrated place, and there's no space or there's no time continuum. And then it explodes, and now everything has started. That's the beginning. Let's say you have a really smart four-year-old. Okay, let's, let's, let's fast forward. Maybe a seven-year-old. We don't have to have a genius four-year-old. But even a six- or seven-year-old <laughs> can piece that together. And you know what? They can ask this question. Where'd that come from? <laughs> and why does that matter? And let me ask you this question. Can science answer that seven-year-old? <laughs> and when I put it this way, I think you all know the answer is no. <laughs> what can science tell the seven-year-old before the Big Bang or and the question of why does it matter? <laughs> science cannot say anything. Zero, zip, zilch, zero. <laughs> we can line up all of the most brilliant PhDs in the world, multiple Nobel Prizes, and then if they were given honest answers to that, they'd go, Sorry, kiddo, I got nothing. I got nothing. And that would be absolutely right and honest. And yet our culture, we regularly run through life, and there's an assumption. The assumption is science can explain the beginning, and that's all we need. And I want to just close out this first part by saying to you, this whole way of thinking this whole attitude is what I would like to call the modern scientific creation myth. <laughs> See, in 1989, my school told me I believe in a myth. In 2022, I would like to stand up and tell you Stanford believes in a myth. They believe in the myth of man. They believe that science can give you all these answers. It's really strange how you can believe in science and turn it into a religion. A religion has to tell you where it starts. And you know where the basis of that is? It's faith. <laughs> if you cannot prove it, you cannot falsify it, you cannot verify it, you are not in science. You are in religion. You're absolutely in the world of religion. And if our universities tell you a story at the beginning, it doesn't matter if it's based on science. If all they have is faith, because that's all it is, it's a pure belief, it's a myth. <laughs> they are, they're playing, they're doing religion. In 1989, I was very disturbed. You know why I was disturbed? Because their religion was crashing into my religion. <laughs> and today, that's exactly what's going on. <laughs> we live in a society where the secular religion is absolutely telling Christians, we're the dumb ones and we're the bad ones. 
we're the racist ones, we're the hateful ones. And let me tell you, it's not a battle of science versus religion. It is a battle of religion versus religion. Secular religion of man versus the word from God. Okay? That's part one. Let's go to part two. The importance of the beginning. This is the, the verse. I haven't even said the verse yet because uh, it's so simple. <laughs> In the beginning, God created. Today, I'm basically in the beginning, God created. This whole sermon is based on those five verses. And I'm really just talking about mostly those first three words, in the beginning. Actually, in the Hebrew, it's even simpler than that. It's like one word. Um, let me show off a little bit. All right? Okay. Bereshit bara Elohim et het shamaim vavet haaret. You know why I read it slowly? Because my Hebrew's not that good. <laughs> it's impressive, right? I can read it. And I'm sure I butchered it. But that's just well, those words I just gave you, that's all there is. Oh, but they're so important. Those Hebrew words came from God. And they tell us how things, who we are and what reality is. In the beginning, God. It's almost too easy. <laughs> and you think it's so easy, that's why we don't pay attention to it. And it's so easy a child can understand. That's how good God is. The beginning of his book, of his words, he gives it to children. We adults were thinking, it's for kids. Okay, I've outgrown it. Let me tell you something. Don't ever, ever, ever think that. In the beginning, God created. Let me say a couple things. I want to ask you a question. Why is it so important how you think of the beginning? However you think of the beginning is also how you think of the middle and the end. Every story, every conception of everything, you have to have some idea of its beginning, even if it's not explained. If it's assumed, it's still there's there. The beginning is somehow there. If you have to have some conception of the beginning, now you've already have a condition, what is the middle and what is the end? Let me tell you what else is going on. It's also the beginning tells you what the whole thing is. So here's my question. How do you see all of reality? How do you see all of reality? Hmm? How did it begin? And where does it come from? How about this? What is the world? What is the world for? Where is the world going? I asked you the what. I asked you the from. I asked you the why. I asked you its purpose. 
Let me tell you something. Secular science myth. Don't have an answer for any of that. <laughs> but the one thing it does tell you is we're not created. <laughs> That's the first thing it tells you. God, don't know if he exists. And if he does exist, he's irrelevant. But when we look at the world, it's not created. That's important. In the secular science myth of the 21st century, it is not created. Now, let's just, just time out for a second. If you're listening to me today and you're like, oh my gosh, this crazy fundamentalist preacher, they hate science. These Christians, we hate these people because they hate science. Let me tell you something that is wrong. I love science. I love science built on my theology. <laughs> if you're a Christian and you don't love science, you're really stupid. <laughs> Your theology is really, really bad. So I just want to just help our friends who think that Christians are like really stupid, bad people for hating science. We don't hate science. But you can't build a religion on science. That's what I'm saying today. Hmm. Um, I want to ask this question. Um, why preach this series? I've never preached Genesis chapter 1, not as a series. I've never even preached Genesis 1-1. I can't ever remember preaching it. Why am I doing it? And I want to start here. Um, you know, normally you give an intro to the series at the intro, but I thought I would throw it in into a really important middle portion. Why are we talking about this? And it's to answer this question, the importance of the beginning. It's so broken and missing in our heads and in our hearts. But I want to just start right here. Um, maybe, perhaps, in hundreds of years in the West, in the West, where Christianity has been the dominant religion for a long, long time, even if tons of people don't actually believe in Christianity, in the West... We've probably never lived in a time where Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, has been more disdained, has been more rejected. And we have to wrestle with that. How do we get to such a terrible place in our culture where the first words, Bereshit bara Elohim, right? In the beginning, God created is utterly rejected by our culture, by the smartest, by our most educated, and now just it's coloring everything. How do we get to that place? And I want to just start right here. I think that the first one, how do we get here? I would say the first explanation, there's multiple reasons. There's a lot of reasons, but we should have at least a few and wrestle with them. Number one is arrogance. It's arrogance. It's human pride. Why do human beings want to turn to science and not to the Bible? Why do human beings want to turn to science and not to something else that's a revealed thing from God? I would say, first and foremost, it's arrogance. <laughs> There's something really sick and deep in the human heart. And everybody has it. Everybody has some version of it. Augustine called it pride. We want to not need God. We want to build our life without God. We want to be self-sufficient, to have all things. 
I don't need God. I can build my life by myself. Or if not by myself, at least with all the other smart people around me. All the best people, we can do it. We don't need God. We don't need a word from God. And so, first and foremost, it is one of the most wicked, deep sins there is. It seems utterly reasonable. Science seems more reliable. You can confirm it. You can verify it. You can falsify it. You know what? There's something else about human beings that why we like science? Because it's kind of under our control. But if it's just straight from God, we, ha we don't have control. <laughs> we cannot verify it. We can't actually even falsify it. We can kind of falsify some things in bad religion. But God is utterly not controllable. We're, we're, we're not even sure how to get to him. If there's a God and we need God, that's really hard because we've got no controls. That's what we know as human beings. And since we don't got any controls, they're like, wait a second. Maybe we can get rid of it. <laughs> so in the beginning, there was just the Big Bang. But the Bible says, in the beginning, God created. <laughs> Actually, there's a great answer. Hello, six-year-old. What about before that? Let's just say Big Bang was true. I'm not sure if it's true, but let's just grant it. That that's true. Before the Big Bang, Kid goes, what, 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 what about before it? Well, we'll say, that was God. <laughs> before Big Bang, God. And you know what the child would go? Oh, that's good. It satisfies. So the first one, pride, arrogance. And the modern, the hypermodern, the postmodern man we're so prideful, we think we know the difference between myth and science. Science, myth. You know, a lot of the times, most of the time, I think modern man, we can tell the difference between science and myth until we go in the beginning. And all of a sudden, we can't tell the difference because we're arrogant. Here's the first thing I want to start here. We need to be told the beginning. We can't figure it out ourselves. Someone wiser than us. Someone who is transcendent above every culture and time and place. Harvard or Stanford or UC Berkeley or MIT or Oxford or you just name the top, top school. You can put all the greatest brains of all history together, and let me tell you, they cannot give you this answer. <laughs> it has to be told. A word must be told to you. The theologians, we call this revelation. It has to be revealed. Someone says, I know, and you don't. And there's one person who knows, because he was there. In the beginning, God. It's the first problem, arrogance. It fills up all of our minds in the 21st century. Second problem, this one's hard. Why are we at this place where Genesis 1, 1 is so hated? 
because Christians have failed. <laughs> That's why. The churches have failed. I'll give you the cut to the chase answer. And you already know when I give you this answer, it's true. It's what I've been talking about for the last three weeks to set you up for this series. Because Christians love money and the tiny little glories of the world more than the glory of God. <laughs> that is the state of Christians in the 21st century. It's not even just the state of the Christians in America. I went to Korea, 25% Christians. Some of the most intense Christians in the whole world. I go church after church after church. Korean Christians, oh, they love money. They love getting into college. They love earthly glories more than God. So that's really, really painful. If Christians love money and the glories of the world, we love the glory of science. And then if I say science, then I'll make money. And then I'll have respect. But if I say the Bible, then maybe, well, nobody will respect me and I'll probably be poor. That's generally true. I'm a pastor. I know. <laughs> From experience. That's pretty much true. So then you're like, but I don't want to be not respected. And I want money. So the kids chase money and earthly glory. And our parents want them to. I'll tell you a terrible thing. I told my parents God called me to be a pastor. My dad's an elder. My mom is what we call a kwansanim in the Korean church, which means a spiritual mother. They said, no. My parents are very godly people. My parents are godlier than most of you. And yet, they still loved money and earthly glory and they did not want to give their son to God's church. Now, if I was younger, that might have been, that might have been hard. I would be like, oh, no, Mom, I'm Dad. I got to disobey you. <laughs> I, was, I was older, and I was just like, okay, come on. I'm not going to listen to you. <laughs> I already heard from God. <laughs> Dad, sorry. I know I, I love you, but you sound really dumb. <laughs> I can't listen to you. <laughs> okay? Because God's word is more than your word. Now, that doesn't mean I was such a holy young man, but at least the Holy Spirit did that for me. And we're preaching this series. The churches must have people. We love God and his word. And we look at the whole world, there is word. We look at the whole world and we know that God is everywhere. His fingerprints are everywhere. Everything is from him. It is for him because he is creator. You cannot run away from God. Everywhere you go in the world, God is there. That's why you go to some incredible place like Grand Canyon and you go, oh my goodness, it's so glorious. Even the atheists go to the Grand Canyon and cry. But you know why they cry? Because God made it. And it's from him. It's created. That's why. We know. They don't. But we have not shown them. Um, 
the failure of the church, I want to say this. Um, I knew I was going to preach this series. I was thinking about this for months in Korea. And when I saw how terribly the Korean church is failing, I was like, they're just like us. <laughs> they're failing. I had hoped that the Korean church would be better than us, but they weren't. And everywhere I saw the kids, I was utterly heartbroken. I was heartbroken. I came home, and I'm heartbroken. Every Sunday we come here, I delight to see the ch our children, the revived kids. They're growing up in a demonic world. They're growing up in a world where they are regularly taught the secular myth. You're not created. You're an accidental protoplasm. You can just make up your own identity. You don't need God. And even the kids who joyfully, joyfully, joyfully grow up in the church, they hear the word of the gospel, but the world is screaming so loudly, all its secular mythology. And it comes through the social media, and it comes through the music, and it comes through the schools. It comes through sex, which is why we're having this parent, this parent seminar. And then the kids are destroyed. <laughs> destroyed. Something so fundamental. There are, there are girls today. You may know some of these girls. There are girls today. They don't go, I'm created. I'm made by a good God to be a beautiful woman. And I am beautiful. Instead, she goes, I'm ugly. And I don't want these things that are growing up here. So I'm going to get this thing to wrap myself around a top. And maybe I sh am not a girl. You know what that girl believes? That she is creator. And she is creator. And she does not live in creation. So she must create herself. What she does not know is she's destroying herself. And her whole culture, this is what's screaming. And your jobs are at stake. If you say in your company, that's wrong. <laughs> but we all know it's wrong. Oh, it's wrong. It's not a little wrong. It is horribly, horribly, demonically wrong. And I can't even think about it too much, because if I think about it too much, I would get so angry. And I would just start crying. I get so upset. This is where we are, because we are without creation. We are without Genesis Chapter 1, verse 1. i got to push ahead. I want to give you one more thing before I get to the gospel. 
The young people today, they're living in a huge problem because of this. Because of the secular myth that we are not created and that we do not live in creation. This whole thing is an accidental explosion. We're just molecules in motion. And I'm just talking protoplasm. <laughs> That's it. And since I'm talking protoplasm, I get to make it all up. So there's a problem. And I'm calling it the problem of meaning. The problem of meaning. When you are created, there's meaning. Why? And that meaning cannot shake. And no culture, no smart person, no bully, no rich person, nobody can cancel you and tell you that your meaning is gone and that your life is worthless and that all you're doing is nothing because the meaning is unshakable. It's in God. <laughs> the meaning of your life, the meaningfulness of your life, the meaningfulness of the whole world and everything is unshakable. It's from God. But today, we are going to the opposite. We have the problem of what I call nihilism. At the middle of the problem meeting, there's an old philosophical word called nihilism. We're dealing with nihilism today. Where does the secular mythology of religion lead to? It leads to nihilism. And we're already starting to experience it and taste it. So let me just help you out here. What is nihilism? Nihil or nihil, it's just a word that means nothing. Okay? It's a great word that means nothing. And nihilism means nothingism. Okay? Let me ask you a question. Deep theologians and philosophers ask this question, which people today barely ever ask. I am one of these weird philosophical people that actually ask this question. I asked it many times, even as a boy. Here's the question. Some version of this, that when I went to college, they're like, oh, someone else asked this question. Good, I'm interested. What are your answers? What have all the smartest people said? Because, you know, the smart people are smarter than the Bible and all that Sunday school stuff that I was taught. I'm very interested in the answer to this question. Here is the question. Why does something exist rather than nothing at all? Why does something exist rather than nothing at all? See, even a child asks that question. See, when they're asking you that question, what about before? Is there a God? And if there's no God, maybe there's nothing. A child cares. They can realize that everything that they see around here that they care about, maybe there's nothing. They care about this toy. I love my toy. For Hudson, it was Buzz Lightyear. And Buzz was around, and that lasted about you know, eight months. And the box is empty, and no Buzz. You know what there is? Nihil, nothing. What if all of life is like that? Can science even begin to offer a meaningful and reasonable answer to this question. Why is there something rather than nothing? And of course, you all know, the answer is no. So what is the world and what is life? 
If the world in all reality doesn't have something that make it have lasting worth, lasting worth, it must last. Let me tell you something. It might be nothing. It has something. It's something. You could touch it. There's something. But maybe it's not worth anything. <laughs> and since it's not worth anything, maybe it's nothing. I haven't gotten that verse yet, but you're going to read down, to, we're going to read down this chapter, and it's going to say, and God took dust, and then he breathed life into it, and then we got this human being. Do you know that the stuff, something, not nothing, that you and I are, boils down to dust? But we all know that dust is nothing. <laughs> Actually, we wish there was nothing and not dust because we sweep it away. <laughs> In my house, I hate the dust. Clean it up, throw it away. I actually wish there was nothing rather than dust. That's how much dust is worth. Because dust is something, but really it's nothing. Now let me ask you this question. What if you're something and you have no lasting worth, so you're just nothing. No way. We're a nation. We're a great nation. We're the richest nation. We're the smartest nation. How could we be nothing? But what if it doesn't last? We're pretty close to nothing. Whole nations. Our culture is important. My children, when they were in elementary school, had to do these projects. It was about Native American tribes in the middle of California. And they had to do this thing called the diorama. If you don't know what a diorama is, don't worry about it. <laughs> Every mom knows what they are, if you have a third grader anyway. And you build a little something about the culture of a Native American people. And that was something. It was important to them. But today, it's gone. <laughs> and you know what? It's, you know, it's very rude to say this out loud. Maybe it's not much more than nothing. And if a Native American tribe, their culture and their ways are not much more than nothing, can you think about this? The American way, the American values, the American riches, the American nation and its powers, maybe that's not much more than nothing. You are simply a bunch of molecules in motion. So are all the people around you. You and all the nations of the world are just talking, talking temporary protoplasm. That is the truth according to the secular <laughs> beginning creation myth. Therefore, your life, my life, our life, our nation's life is short, 
and pointless. You can tell yourself and get all worked up about whatever you want. You can get worked about getting rich. You can work about becoming successful. You can live for justice even. I'm going to care about justice so that the poor people will not be seen as nothing. We know they're not nothing. But inside of the secular creation mythology, they're nothing. And all the people who care about their justice, they're nothing too. Make the world a better place, help your people, whatever. It's all short and pointless if you have a poor and weak vision of reality with a poor and flimsy understanding of the beginning. Mm. This is why I say we are in the problem of nihilism, nothingism. That's our culture. And this is why I'm crying for our young people. And if we inside the church, if we live inside of nothingism, our children will die. Our very, very most precious, beautiful kids will become enslaved to who knows what. Some of you are like, I hope they just become really rich and successful, even though they become slave to money. That'd be good. A good ending, right? What if they become enslaved to something worse? Because the world treats them as little better than nothing. Does something slightly bigger than nothings treat the people who are smaller, closer to nothing, like nothing? This is nihilism. This is not creation. It's from God. Let's close with something good. The beginning is tremendously important so that you know the meaning of the world. In order to know the meaning of the world, you have to have a word that's told to you. I already said this. And you know what? There's another place in the Bible, and I want to take you to that place. It goes like this. John chapter 1. Verse 1, in the beginning, it's on purpose. It's exactly, it was written in Greek, but it's basically telling you Genesis chapter 1 all over again. In the beginning was the word. See, it was told to you. But then it gets strange. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. It took a couple little extra words to say it. But John chapter 1, verse 1 through 3, just told you the same thing as those first five words from the Bible. In the beginning, God created. God created. Actually, John chapter 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That's actually, I, I, I want to dispute that a little bit. All things that came to be, came to be through him. And without him, not anything came to be that came to be. It's actually said even stronger than, than that. I actually think the ESV translators kind of wimped out. Nothing even came to be. See, it was just, you were just nothing. 
You can't even come to B. You can't even come to B. Unless it came through the word that was with God, the word that is God. The word that is told to you, the word that is given to you, who is God himself. And this word is how Christians come to know. So let me close this way. I knew I was going to run out of time. So let me try to get tight here, okay? Today, in order for you to know real reality, real reality, I don't just sound, I sound so repetitive, right? <laughs> true, capital T, reality, capital R. Created reality, which is true reality. In order for you to know the truth of reality, you have to have, you have to deal with the problem of trust. Young people today have no idea who to trust. So young people today are going, I can't trust the government. I can't trust my parents. I can't trust the priest or the pastor or the, you, you name it. I can't trust the Republicans. I can't trust the Democrats. I can't trust my social media feed. Who can you trust? And you know who they trust? Themselves. And then when they stop trusting themselves, they get depressed. And then when they get really depressed, then they get addicted. And then when they're tired of being depressed and addicted, they kill themselves. <laughs> so it's the problem of trust. Number two, there's a problem of humility. I told you, we live inside of this demonic anti-creation because we're arrogant. We must come back to being humble, humility. And third, I told you there's a problem of meaning, and it's a big one. So, here we go. The world is not simply about the stuff, the matter, and the protoplasm. Reality cannot only be about where the stuff came from. What manner of stuff are we? Maybe, maybe science can give you that answer, but it's not even enough. Truth, and this is very strange. In order for you to actually know the truth about the beginning and reality, you actually have to know more than truth. This is really weird, isn't it? You have to have trust. You have to have humility. And that truth has to have meaning. You can't just know a fact, because that's all science can give you, a fact. There was this, like the, the ball of gas that behaves this way. <laughs> that's all science can give you. That's a fact. Okay? But what's its meaning? Can't touch that. So, if you want the truth of the beginning, and thus to begin to even get to the truth of everything, you have to have trust, humility, and meaning. So what's weird is, in order to have truth, you need more than truth. It's weird, isn't it? But as soon as I say it this way, you're like, hey, that's right. So here's this. In order for you to have truth, you also need grace. You also need grace. Let me give you a definition of grace. It's that there's love for you that you never earned, never can earn, and absolutely unconditional and unbreakable. That's grace.
Grace is there's love for you. There's goodness for you. You cannot earn it. You will not earn it. You never can earn it. And it'll never go away. That's grace. You have the truth and grace. And um, when I was studying this subject matter, because this is the problem of today. How do you know what's true is true? How do you know what's true is true? There's a subject matter for that in philosophy. It's called epistemology. And the epistemologist, there's one of the great, great epistemologists, he's a Christian, right? He's a Christian. And he asked this question. How do you know your mom is your mom? Now, I'm not talking about craziness. Every normal interaction between you and your mom is because your mom loves you. <laughs> Why do you trust your mom? Because she has the facts? Sometimes your mom doesn't have the right facts. But you know she's your mom because she's filled with grace and truth. When you're interacting with her all the time, she's filled with grace and truth. So you trust her. You believe her. Because the truth comes through grace. The grace comes with truth. So, that's interesting, isn't it? This is how human beings were made. Human beings were created by God for God. You are not fundamentally made to know facts. You are not fundamentally made to make money. You are not fundamentally made to have chasing around little glories so that you can feel like you're glorified. You are made for God. You are made to be loved by God. And from God, you would get Absolutely, grace and truth. <laughs> Better than your mom. A thousand times like your mom. A million times infinitely like your mom. What you get from your mom is just a little, tiny little foretaste of what you were made to get from God in the creation. <laughs> and so, let me close this way. How do Christians come to believe and know the truth of the Bible. How do Christians know that this book is true and real and the world is, oh my goodness, this is, this is, this is the real world. This is awesome. This is the real world. How do, we come to, how do we come to that place? We come to that place because you get the word and the word came to us filled with grace and truth. Let me give you the passage. If you go down the chapter a little bit, you get to verse 14, and it goes like this. And the word, this word you know now is Jesus, became flesh. The word who was with God and is God, and by whom all things came to be, and nothing can come to be, which is pretty much just a Jewish definition of creator, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. You know how we saw his glory? It was in the cross. The word came here to meet us where we were lost. And he bled to show us his glory, to show us his grace. And we have seen his glory, 
glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. <laughs> there it is. Brothers and sisters, let me close today. Here's how Christians know the Bible is true. We don't use all our scientific knowledge and reason our way to the Bible's conclusion. The Bible is a stronger book than the Quran. The Bible is a better book than the Bhagavad Gita. The Bible's got a better, okay, yeah, there we go. That's how we know, because we've used our smart brains, and with our smart brains, we figured it all out. Only Jesus solves all the problems. He is trustworthy. Not the God who sat up there. He became flesh to bleed with us, to bleed for us, to weep with us, to eat with us to die for us. That's a God you can trust. That is a word you can trust. Jesus came down and showed us he isn't just up here using his power. You better believe or I'll send you to hell. There are some doctrines of God that are like that. That is not the doctrine of the gospel. <laughs> the ultimate word of the gospel is the Word who became flesh. He became humble so that humility can be in the flesh and we could taste His humility through the cross. And that humility would wash away our arrogance. And lastly, He came to give it all meaning. Death will take away everything. I've been thinking a lot about death lately. <laughs> Not because I'm morbid, but because my mom just had her 83rd birthday. I'm so grateful that I have my mom when she's 83. But I'm very, very aware that soon I won't have her. Can you begin to think that about all things? But if I love her today, and she has loved me, and we are created by God, for God, from God, and all of his glory is in all of the creation, and if she has loved me in by grace and truth through Jesus Christ, and if Jesus has died, and his blood has washed away all her sins, and all the ways that even her love for me has been broken, and sometimes filled with her unholiness, which I even told you about today, then her love for me will be forever. It'll be meaningful forever. If I love her now, it will last forever and ever because Jesus is not dead. Jesus is alive. And the creation is not dead. And the creation will live forever and forever. That is the word that was with God, that is from God. That is our word. And if you and I live in that world, that creation, we can take on anything. We can take on anything. So brothers and sisters, would you take in the word that created all things, who is with God, who is God, who became flesh, whose glory is full of grace and truth. Utterly trust the Bible and utterly trust in whatever he does through this strange thing that we call church and in you 
through the Bible, and through His Spirit. And we could take on our culture and then some. Yes? Would you believe that? Let's pray. I'm shaking inside, Jesus. That we live in such a terrible time. And yet, so often, we could kind of feel that it's terrible. And then we just watch Netflix. We could feel that it's terrible. And then let's just go out to eat. You know, I can control making money. Let's go make money. And it's very hard for us to let you to be not in control because you are in control. Because you are creator. And thank you, Lord, that even though we are trying to erase you as creator, even though it's completely delusional and we're going to pay the price, you came to redeem the creation and the most beloved of your creation you became so that you could give us grace and truth and your glory. Help us to receive you. Help us to rethink the beginning, receive the beginning, and thus receive everything. Take these crazy blind eyes. Jesus, you walked around. You regularly saw those who were blind. You regularly saw those who were deaf. You regularly saw those who, who were beset with demons. And you, the God who is the creator, who became the word, who became flesh, came to heal the blind and the deaf and the demonically beset. Would you take some of us poor, poor people, but beloved by you, and make us see, and make us feel your creation again, make us feel your presence again, and cast out the demons in us so that we can live according to the glory of your name and the glory of creation and where you are taking us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.